everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Story Living, where we learn from inspiring leaders and their stories. I'm Jack, founder of Light Up Ventures, a certified coaching firm on a mission to illuminate people through story development. For this episode, we have the honor of speaking with Kira Richardson, currently Chief Product Officer at Wind River, who has a values-driven story of success and inspiration from her time at Amazon and Microsoft, we're gonna learn around her leadership style as well as how to create radically caring cultures. So without further ado, let's flip to the first digital page of this story and dive in. Hi, Kira, thanks so much for taking time. How are you doing today? I'm well, Jack, thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you for asking and thanks again for taking time. Where are you joining us from? At home, from Seattle. At home, okay, just up from us in California. Hope you're enjoying it out there. And I know it's been quite the journey as you started uh, out on the East Coast and made your way over West and looking forward to hearing you know, your very accomplished journey. But uh, before we get too professional, I wanna start out in your early days, which I believe all started at Radio Shack. Uh, didn't quite have access to computers, so you were tinkering away, maybe even giving some product demos to customers, um, and then eventually landed an internship. So how did that all come about for you? Well. You know, we, um, I went to Friend Select in Philadelphia and we had a few Commodore pets and that's when I really got hooked uh, on computers and software. Um, but we didn't, we didn't really have access to those machines at home. And so um, I went to the nearby Radio Shack after school to get access uh, to a machine. And I would sit there and code and the folks at Radio Shack would let me sit there because I would answer technical questions for the customers. And I was really- All right, can I pause you? How old were you at this time too, just so we know? I was 13, almost 14. <laughs> wow, okay, sorry, continue, that's amazing. <laughs> and, um, and I was really fortunate to have, you know, folks that I didn't think of as leaders in my life um, at that time. So for example, this woman, Pat Smith, was uh, the manager at Radio Shack. And, you know, seeing this amazing woman you know, sort of running a very, um, you know, a business in a very male dominated, you know, um, market was inspiring. But the other part of that too, was that, you know, again, I was 13, so it was hard. You don't have the circumspect at 13 that you have as an adult, but I guess maybe I sensed a little bit that uh, Pat was investing in me too. You know, I, I just thought, hey, well, I'm helping out. I'm not being a burden. I'm not there, you know, causing trouble. I'm really helping out. But I, I you know, in retrospect, I, I think she was investing in me too. Um, mm -hmm. And not in an overt way. I would make a, help them make a sale, talk about software to someone. And, um, you know, they take me out to dinner or give, buy me a floppy disk or something like that. Um, and so one of those days they had this person come in um, Eric Balin from GERCA, who is um, Director of Business Systems. And he came in and asked me a bunch of questions about this software that I was writing for a plumber that could do estimates. Hmm. Um, and he asked me about how it worked and, you know, how much, where I stored the data and all these other things. And he gave me his card and he asked uh, if I had, a, you know, if I wanted to work over the summer. And I think at this point I was 14 going on 15. Wow. And I said, sure, yeah. And, you know, wound up working for GERCA that, that summer as a mainframe IBM 
370 um, mainframe developer writing APL, uh, chip pricing system in APL. Wow, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, from there, continued to excel, um, but also didn't quite have the luxury of finishing school or strategically planning your career uh, that some of us have had the opportunity to do. So I'm curious, um, you know, given your past and how you were able to navigate that situation, providing for a family eventually too, um, you know, for our viewers who are maybe struggling in similar situations, any advice you might offer to them? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm not really sure how much advice uh, my advice is worth, but, um, you know, I left home when I was 17. I went to Drexel, uh, you know, um, for um, almost two years. And at the same time to make ends meet, I was consulting, you know, after you work at GERCA, it's super easy to get you know, um, additional consulting work at this time because lots of people were trying to figure out how to use the PC. And mm -hmm. so um, I eventually even found other folks that I went to school with uh, that were interested in consulting and I was helping them find work too. So, you know, there's a point at which uh, you're making so much money and you're going to school and you start to wonder, well, I'm learning the things that I need to learn and I know how to learn. Hmm. So do I really need to finish? Hmm. And I think that, you know, there's, there's lots of trade-offs there that are real trade-offs that people make today. I mean, in the middle of COVID, you know, we have millions of people who, you know, have lost their job and are making hard choices today. And at that point, you know, when you're 17 or 18, you don't really have, you know, your prefrontal cortex is still getting wired, you're, you're, you're wired for short term rather than long term. And so that it made sense for me to leave school. Mm. You know, I would still do classes here and there at Penn or, or Drexel because they, Penn had this great C course um, that no one else had. You know, um, Drexel was teaching Pascal on the uh, Macs, you know, on, on these new Macintoshes that had just come out. So. I guess the lesson in that situation is it's really hard to defer gratification when you're 17, 18, 19, 20. Um, but I think the difference that, you know, those choices would have made in my life is they would have given me more options. If I had finished and got my bachelor's or my master's or even my PhD, you know, I might be in a different position in my career now. Um, so it, you know, it's all a trade-off and it's really about thinking about where you want to be. And I guess the other thing is the industry has changed now. Mm. Um, you know, the skills that I would have learned, uh, you know, um, with a bachelor's in the eighties are really different than the skills that I use today. So, I mean, we've had an object oriented revolution. We've had an AI winter. We're having an AI spring. Um, we've moved from waterfall to agile. And you would literally have to be in school every day, every year <laughs> to keep up with the industry. And so part of what the software and technology business teaches you is that you have to be an autodidact. You have to always be lear learning. And I think there's a temptation to just do your work heads down, do what you're being asked to do, but that's really mortgaging your future. You know, if you can't always be learning, which you learn, which is part of, you know, a PhD program is learning how to learn. Um, 
if you can't bring that to your daily, weekly life in your professional career and hopefully in your personal life too, um, you're going to stagnate. Mm. Great points. Yeah. And I appreciate, you know, for our viewers too, at the end of the day, people have to decide what's best for them and their families. And clearly yeah. you were, you know, doing what worked best for you. And I, I love your thoughts too. And, you know, big fans when I do coaching work around andragogy, the science of adult learning and what you're sharing that neuroscience and, and it's tough to put off that kinesthetic, like hands-on learning uh, when you're also making some money on the side. So yeah. um, as you continue in your uh, journey, I think you ended up at the Wellington Group and um, doing some fascinating work around minority market research uh, for some top companies. So maybe share a little bit of what that was like and, and why it was personally important to you. The Wellington Group was amazing. You have to remember that at this point at Drexel and Penn, um, there weren't many brown faces at all. You know, in these, even, even if you think about now, you go back to Drexel Le Pen and there are a lot of Asian folks, uh, a lot of folks from different countries attending these top schools. Um, but back then it was mostly white male faces. Mm. And so leaving that, you know, leaving that realm and seeing, you know, black professionals um, other, you know, other black professionals making money and being successful and leading in an industry. At this time, um, you know, we did work with Coca-Cola, Procter and Gamble, and um, a whole collection of businesses that were trying to understand uh, how um, African Americans, Latinos, um, spend their money because they were just starting to recognize the power of minority spending. And this is about the birth, you know, at the same time, really interesting that that birth and recognition of diversity buying power was the same time of the birth as the birth of the IBM PC. And so, you know, we were uh, sitting in, in uh, a house that Al Wellington bought that's literally right next door to his home. And, um, you know, all the computers were on the top floor. And so I would walk up to the attic and start writing code and the code that I was writing in basic at the time was to take this data that people were manually enter entering. Remember these folks would run surveys asking black folks to uh, make purchases in a virtual store and you know same thing with Latinos and basically asking what their uh, spending habits were by putting them through these virtual stores entering that data from from these surveys and then i would write the software that would do cross tabulation on these surveys hmm. and so i would sit next to the people that were entering data because we had a limited number of pcs and i'm working and they're working and then we have these okie data printers spread all around you know the attic that were printing out the reports because it would take in some cases three or four days to print out all the tabulated um, data for these reports and it was just really exciting because it, you know, it began to give me a, um, an insight, again, for a very young person, insight into how a business works. Well, we had to pay the data entry folks. We had to recruit people to participate. And all of these things cost money. And getting to see a business from start to end, including, you know, the the handing the material off to the to the customer explaining the methodology um it's really exciting and you know you don't especially at that age get to see a business from 
you know, uh, from back to front. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I love those points. And um, what an opportunity for, you know, a transformative time to really scale your impact for the minority groups. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, just what an opportunity to, for us to come together and have these types of conversations. And we'd love to get to your experience where you ended up eventually at Microsoft. Um, but speaking of that transition for you, coming over from the East Coast to the West Coast, so already some cultural differences, but then also I think as a single mother and a queer woman of color, you know, what was that like for you? Because I have no idea what that was like. Um, but, you know, share um, from your point of view, um, any, any moments that stood out or just how you navigated those types of, you know, corporate settings and, and that transformative time for yourself personally. Oh, that's a lot to unpack. Um, yes. Well, let's Sorry. first talk about this. <laughs> let's let's first talk about the the motion out here. Um, I'd written some software for linked list management in C plus plus, which was brand new at the time, uh, and put it on CompuServe because there wasn't an internet at the time. And so folks from Microsoft saw it and flew me out, and I interviewed here. Um, the you know. New York, Philadelphia uh, culture is very candid, direct, and the you know the culture in Microsoft wasn't it wasn't candid or direct. It was very you know uh, very much trying to avoid conflict, sharing each other's opinion, but not necessarily you know uh, engaging in conflict. And you know really interested me from the standpoint, and I think at the point I didn't, at that point I didn't have the circumspect to recognize that it was a different culture. I was just like, these people are behaving really strangely. Why aren't they talking about these big problems that we're having? And I think between then and now, one of the great things that has happened is we as a, as a community have started thinking about culture. Like I look at the work that Daniel Kahneman has done around this book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow about uh, not only develop a development of our you know, neuroscience, but also about the biases that we have built in. Um, I think about Kim Scott and Radical Candor and how you, know, you can be candid, but also you can care. Um, mm. And, and you know, this sort of roadmap and, and also, um, you know, some of the work that have been done with primates around understanding primate culture. And so when I look at all of that research in total, you know, over the 30 years that I've been here, it's really helped me to understand that there are all of these different cultures and how you fit into those cultures and how you participate or not participate is important. I will say the one thing that was positive for me uh, about those early years at Microsoft was a lot like being in in the Drexel or Penn community. It was, um, you know, University City in Philadelphia is, uh, University City and this other area called South Street were really kind of the avant-garde, you know, sort of culturally in Philadelphia. Uh, and I know that's kind of potentially an oxymoron, um, but but then I got to see some of those same communities at Microsoft that I thought were exclusively part of a college community. I got to see people incredibly interested in science that were building rockets, making explosives. I got to see um, 
people who were experimenting culturally, like I, I had a, a couple invite me into a polyamorous relationship in the 90s. Um, and, and I had no exposure to that. I had, you know, Philadelphia was mostly a, a Catholic community, you know, um, Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic community. So those notions were just insane, you mm. know, to me when I, I looked at them. But, you know, as you, you know, as you approach it more like a social scientist rather than, you know, a person um, with their own moral yardstick, you know, uh, and you approach it with curiosity, there's lots to learn from all of these different communities, including, you know, a great uh, queer community at, at Microsoft called Glean. Mm. Um, and it was great to, you know, see, um, again, at that point, I was really characterizing myself as a young adult in my 20s, but getting to see these full-on adults, you know, that were um, not only um, living their life, but having pride, you know, not, not looking at being a queer adult as a shameful thing because you grew up in a, in a uh, religious, you know, sort of uh, environment really saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with who I am and that's cool. And that, you know, that growth was amazing, you yeah. know, the, to be in that environment and growing intellectually, culturally, and, you know, in an understanding of oneself. It's just, you know, it was a heady time. The 90s was a heady time mm. to be at Microsoft. Wow, incredible. And thanks so much for sharing, um, especially those unique perspectives. And so I'm curious, you know, I think you also shared a story of when your friend uh, visited one time and noticed how you were showing up a little differently. And I know I struggle with this and many others do, right, with um, maybe in a corporate setting or professional, we feel a need to tighten it up. But then in our day to day, a little bit different, you, um, you know, mentioned a book around code switching, like this chameleon effect of, of showing yeah. up different ways in different places. So how has your understanding or relationship to that idea, you know, evolved over the years? Yeah, and, and it really went back to that, the incident we talked about was um, when I had a friend from uh, Drexel and friends from, from Friends Select, um, you know, which is a Quaker school downtown that had the most affluent, you know, people, uh, kids in, in the city sort of uh, living. When I would bring them to my neighborhood in North Philadelphia, um, they would notice the switch in my language and how I talk and walk and, you know, they even said eye contact. And so, you know, I think you learn whether you, um, you know, certainly there are folks on the spectrum, you know, um, from the standpoint of understanding social cues to, to being less aware of those social cues. But, you know, if you're aware of social cues, I think you're going to transform and try to adapt because, you know, I could walk from 16th and Gerard in North Philadelphia and walk up 16th Street. And the first, you know, the first um, four or five blocks is, is all African-American. It's, it's black. There's uh, a couple of amazing sort of um, businesses in the area that were really anchors for the neighborhood. Um, and folks, you know, knew me in the neighborhood and they're like, oh, she's biracial. We know her. But you go into the next neighborhood, which is in about six or seven blocks up, and that is, uh, you know, primarily Latino. Um, mm. and, and folks, 
in that neighborhood would see my light skin and they would say, oh, well, she, you know, she's got a wide nose. She doesn't look, you know, white. I think she's probably Latino. And they would start speaking to me in Spanish. Um, and, you know, you go downtown Philadelphia, which was at the point, at that point, there were a lot of primarily white businesses. If you think about, uh, you know, even Friends Select, um, John Wanamaker was down there. Uh, there's a whole collection of very, um, you know, very white businesses and, and making those transitions uh, was certainly, you had to adapt to be able to make transitions into each of those different neighborhoods. And so I think that even in a, cor a corporate environment, you know, part of that transition that I made was initially not confronting folks. I would confront folks and then they would be like, oh, I don't want to deal with her. And so learning the, learning how to adapt in each of those environments um, is important because especially in the 90s and early 2000s, there wasn't this notion of how do I include someone, mm. right? There's a lot of uh, exclusion. Um, there were a lot of microaggressions and no one, we didn't have a language for it. Like privilege wasn't really a word that people used, mm. you know, during that time. And the real focus was on trying to get folks to behave you know, to fit in the corporate culture. And so, you know, the, the books on code switching, the coaching that we gave during that time, a lot of it was really about how do you switch and how do you bridge into this other culture? And I'm, I'm so gratified now to see more discussion about how do we include more people? How do we include more voices? I love the work that Catalyst has done to show that you know, including especially women's voices, there are, the product that you make is more representative because you're representing the perspectives of your audience. Mm. And that um, inclusion is going to really drive, um, you know, financial benefit to the company. And I'd love to say that, you know, companies have um, a moral obligation that they're following up on, but ultimately many of them are just, um, you know, uh, uh, businesses that have fiduciary responsibility to the stakeholders. And so when we can contextualize the value of inclusion in a way that drives business, positive business outcomes, I see it as a way to help um, the, the people in power, the people with privilege to, uh, to bring more folks to the table. Mm. Wonderfully said. So much wisdom in there. I love your point around the adaptation, but also a sense of, of balance, right? We're picking up on social cues, but also, um, you know, maintaining integrity and true to your own values. And, and how do we find, you know, the balance in there um, when building, you know, bringing different people together. And I know you shared a, a particular example around um, someone who was supposed to be under your wing, right? And ended up actually <laughs> undermining you. And you just handed it in my uh, point of view just so gracefully, um, but maybe just walk us through a little bit of the story, but more just maybe some practical advice around this idea of the radical conversations with uh, the radical candor. Sure. Um, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, I had at the time and, and still have a great relationship with uh, this uh, VP that I worked for and we brought in um, someone from, you know, outside of Microsoft and, you know, under the auspices of inclusion, we're trying to figure out how to get this this person, get him included in 
all of these different aspects of the business. And, you know, when you move from one company to another, that's hard, right? Um, especially when you do that and you're moving locations. Um, so you move cities, you move jobs, you have a different boss. And so the goal was, how can we get this person involved in all of these different um, uh, in the business flow. So I started bringing him to all of these different meetings and, you know, we were doing some work around um, meeting startups and I started noticing this pattern where, you know, I'd invite him to a group of meetings and then he would take them over. He would say, okay, well, I don't want to talk to these folks in this order. I want to talk to them in this order. I want to do a side deal with this person um, without including me, even though I had initiated the conversation, initiated you know, all of this work. And, you know, the, the first time I said to, you know, I said to him, hey, I'm noticing this behavior and, you know, what, help me understand what's going on here. And, you know, uh, he came back and he said, well, I thought Microsoft was collaborative. What, you know, you're not, you're not being really collaborative here. And so I reflected on it, you know, uh, for a bit and, but it kept happening again and again and again. And we had the same conversation and he would use some variation of that same deflection. And, you know, after the third or fourth time, um, my manager, his manager asked me to go have dinner to bury the hatchet. And uh, so I we're sitting in downtown Bellevue and, and this, this guy says, hey, you know, I think we got off on the wrong foot. I said, I think we got off on the wrong foot and we stayed on the wrong foot. Here's my perspective about what happened each time. Mm -hmm. And I said, and I approached you after each of these events. And so, you know, he tried to explain it away. And I said, look, um, there's this parable about the frog and the scorpion. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think he knew what it was. And so I explained to him that, you know, the, the frog says to the scorpion, hey, I want to bring you across this river because you're going to sting me and, and I, you know, I don't want to die. And, you know, eventually he the scorpion talks the frog into it. They get across the river, halfway across, and the scorpion stings him. And as they're drowning, the frog said, why? And the scorpion says, it's just because this is who I am. Mm. And I said to this guy, I just think this is who you are. Mm. and um, I can't see being willing to continue to have a dysfunctional relationship with you. So I'd rather not have a relationship with you. Mm. And, you know, he, he still has a really challenging reputation, you know, in the organizations that he's been in. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard because you want to bring people in, but you have to, Kim Scott in her book, I think that if you care, you know, she talks about these axes of um, uh, not challenge or challenge indirectly, challenging directly, not caring and caring personally. And if you look at those different quadrants, um, if you care personally and you want to challenge directly because you need to evolve the relationship, like we talk about, agile in business and we talk about agile in tech well you need the same sort of infrastructure in relationships right if your relationships are going to evolve you need to be able to see this data look at it make decisions and move forward and um 
you know, it is a matter of respect. If you respect someone and you care about them, you want to have these conversations so that you can uh, evolve and grow your your um, relationships with them. Mm. Wonderfully said. Thanks for sharing the example. And, and I love that matrix of just the balance of finding care, but challenging, um, especially in a work environment when you're when you're yeah. ultimately trying to be productive too. Um, so speaking of, you know, productivity, appreciate all the thoughts around, you know, the interpersonal side of things. Um, but you also just have a vast um, list of, you know, technical accomplishments over your years. And so switching gears a little bit, maybe looking back at those Microsoft years, was there a particularly proud moment, especially on a team level, um, where you helped rally the troops and just accomplish maybe a big launch or, or something along the lines of an engineering feat that you were proud of? Wow, there's so many. Um, we I've, I've been really fortunate to be part of a lot of great teams. Um, in Windows CE, we built some of the first ATMs. Uh, those are really exciting. We built, you know, in, in some cases, Microsoft was really great at doing the first version of, of a technology or product, but maybe not the best person or best organization to consumerize it. But if you look at uh, some of those HPI packs that had Windows CE, I mean, those were the first phones hmm. that those are the first smartphones. Um, and that was to, you know, in the 1990s, you know, maybe two decades before the iPhone. Um, you know, I look at some of the tablets, we even made some tablets on Windows CE. Um, but the other parts I think are around Windows 95, we made it really easy to uh, capture uh, photos. Mm. You know, this notion of being able to take a digital camera and um, take your photos and put them on your PC. And, you know, uh, I think there were probably 40 or 50,000 people when we launched Windows CE that were on campus at the launch. And, you know, that closeness of building a new product with, um, you know, with a group of people, because it's never you by yourself. Uh, whenever you go through a struggle like that, you become really close to those people. The other ones I think about are like, you know, uh, Borland Turbo C, Turbo Pascal, and Visual Basic transformed the industry because a developer, people writing code were limited to really nerdy folks like me who cared about languages. But Visual Basic and VBA um, made it easy for people who weren't professional developers to write code. And so the number of developers in the world in a, in a year went from a few hundred thousand to nearly two million. And that was really because of, you know, some of the technology that that us in Borland really invented and integrated into products like Excel, like the scripts in Excel came from, you know, the work that we did in Visual Basic. So, you know, there's there's just a ton of them and the teams were, you know, always awesome because you have a group of folks that care. Uh, especially at that time, so much about the customer experience. Mm. So really exciting times. Yeah, incredible, incredible. And just those teams um, and your heart for caring for people um, through all of that and bringing you know, people together to accomplish some amazing feats. Uh, so as we're wrapping up here, speaking of caring for other people, I know you have a nonprofit that's particularly close to your heart. Uh, I think it's the Lambert House. Maybe give them a little yeah. shout out for the episode yeah. and uh, why they're important to you. Lambert House is awesome. Uh, I volunteered, I guess, in uh, 
the early 2010s for a few years at Lambert House. And it was really just a great experience because um, Lambert House is a drop-in center for gay and lesbian youth. And, um, you know, I, I'd heard about Lambert House through a friend of a friend, uh, started volunteering uh, one uh, evening a week, and the stories were just amazing, you know, from um, really fully self-actualized youth, people that understood that they were gay, uh, accepted it, and were um, really thriving in a community of other young folks, you know, and I, in a lot of ways, um, uh, Seattle and, and that section of Seattle is is in is kind of a, a gay mecca. Um, but the other thing you get to see are uh, other youth that were struggling, you know, youth that were um, sort of shunned by their family, some homeless, that, you know, I, I think there were one or two uh, young men that I met there that were um, homeless, but, you know, they come in every day clean, they were going to school, they were finishing high school and effectively thrown out of the house because their parents couldn't deal with them being gay. And seeing, you know, that range of, you know, bravery and self-actualization is inspiring. It's hard not to be inspired, you know, in that group. I think there was one day um, when Alanis uh, Morissette's uh, first album came out and uh, all the girls in the house started singing, um, ironic. And it was great to be in the middle of that. You know, it, it still gives me goosebumps, that moment when you see this whole community sort of coming together and having a shared experience. Um, it's pretty positive. Mm, another positive and great example of just your heart and care for people and just spreading some love. Um, so as we're wrapping up, any more love or real wisdom, inspiration you want to leave us with as uh, we wrap up here? Yeah, that, that's pretty hard. I don't know that, um, you know, I don't know that I have a lot of wisdom uh, to impart, but I guess, you know, I, I had uh, an interview recently with someone and they, they asked me a very similar question and it was about an organization. And, you know, uh, I guess the wisdom was really around this question of who do you want to be? Hmm. Um, you know, think about who you want to be and think about how the actions that you take uh, are reflecting that or not reflecting that. And, um, you know, uh, who you are isn't who, you know, necessarily who you see, but it is the actions you take. And mm -hmm. so uh, you re I think you really have to reflect on, you know, are the actions that you're taking reflecting who you want to be? Mm. Great words and um, love how you share about how you've taken care of other people and, um, you know, lifted them up. And especially in these difficult times, hopefully our viewers uh, found it as inspirational as I did. So thank you so much for joining Kira and all the best. Thank you, Jack. Have a good one. Wow. Personally touched, and I know many of you viewers were as well. Huge thank you to Kira for sharing her story. And with that, would like to express my gratitude uh, through a simple closing prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being good. Uh, thank you for always providing. And thank you for your love that you shine through in so many ways. 
Uh, I'm personally feeling touched and thankful for Kira and her story of inspiration and how much care she brings to others. Uh, we just thank you, God, for being so loving and so kind. Uh, and I just pray for anyone struggling in these times right now to feel your care and your love. And I thank you for all of this in Jesus's precious name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and much love.